years ago, uh, in fact more years than I care to remember when I was an undergraduate, I used to travel uh, back to university from weekends at home uh, with a friend who had a car. Uh, This car was his pride and delight. It was a a bright red mini. I found one on the internet that looked pretty much like it did. This is all these years ago, you need to remember. All right? And he just loved this car. He was an older guy than me. He was a postgraduate student and, uh, and he was polished beautifully and he just looked after it meticulously. On one occasion, we were going on this journey and as we were driving along, he, could hear a, he said he could hear a faint squeaking noise. And he was really worried about this squeak. He reviewed in his mind, is it the suspension? Is it a noise from under the bonnet? Is it something more serious? And so I'm, I'm not even sure that he didn't stop and sort of push it a bit and, and, and try and discover where this squeak came from. Eventually, after a lot of investigation, we discovered the source of the squeak. On the back seat of his car, it was the handle of his briefcase that kept moving backwards and forwards as we travelled along in the car. I thought about that a couple of weeks later. Once again, I was with him in the car. We were travelling from my home, which is in Derbyshire, to the University of Sheffield, where I was studying. As we came round the bend, one of the tyres blew out. The car turned over upside down twice, and we ended with the roof upside down in a ditch. Thankfully, neither of us were injured, but he didn't do his car any good. It was a write-off. And as I thought about it, and I've thought about it several times since then, I think I've even used it before as an illustration, but it reminded me that something like that puts a squeaky briefcase handle into perspective. It made me wonder whether he should perhaps have been more concerned about the quality of his tyres. And one of the problems in life which has been brought home so forcefully already to us It's how we tend to focus on things that are relatively unimportant at the cost of ignoring those things which are really important. And sometimes that only happens when something really serious happens. And we wake up to that fact, hopefully not before it's too late. And today as we continue this series in Luke's Gospel, uh, which we've called Good News of Great Joy for All People, we found Jesus warning his followers in his teaching about this tendency and alerting them to the dangers that they faced and that we face. And I've entitled it the radical teaching of Jesus. For the word radical, the root meaning of radical is root. It means getting to the real fundamental issues, to concentrate on the fundamental aspects of a matter, the dictionary defines it. If you have been around this church a long time, you may recall in the dim and distant past I looked at my records and if you look in our tape library and on our website, um, I preached when I first came here in 1993, the year after I came here, there are eight sermons on this chapter. You may be glad or not to know that we're only preaching two this time. We're going to look at it more broadly. So today, will you turn in your Bibles to Luke 12? The words of Jesus, we're going to read verses 1 to 34. 
And I think, guys, we'll, we'll miss out the song that we were going to do, okay? Uh, we were thinking about having another song in between, but I think our time's going, and I prefer just to focus on this. We'll pray in a moment when we've read this. So to keep you waiting, sitting on your seats there. And as we read it, look at what Jesus is saying to the crowds, how radical what he's saying is. Meanwhile, when a great crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but he's not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not say your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, 
For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand them, shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that the words of our Saviour spoken all those years ago to the crowds around him have been preserved for our good, to challenge us, to wake us up. So again, we pray that by your Spirit they might have an impact on our lives as they challenge the conventions of our day and challenge us to live radically for Jesus. So take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take all that we are completely as we've been singing already and make us completely committed to you and the cause of Christ and his kingdom. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now, keep your Bible open in front of you if you will. Uh, Let me try and group together what Jesus says in these 34 verses under three headings. Under three warnings. Three warnings. Here is the first one, just in the first three verses. Don't be deceived by appearances. Don't be deceived by appearances. In our last study, if you're here, when Colin was speaking last Sunday evening, we looked at the very, very strong words Jesus spoke against the Pharisees and their compatriots, the religious teachers of the law, the religious leaders of Israel, He spoke against them in the strongest terms, accusing them of pride, corruption, spiritual abuse, and even murder. Pretty strong stuff. Now as vast crowds mass around him, he turns to his disciples, who are going to be the future spiritual leaders, not only of Israel, but of the worldwide kingdom of Christ. And he issues a warning to leaders and to disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Maybe when Jesus spoke those words about the Pharisees, the disciples didn't really take him what he was saying, because what he said about the Pharisees was so shocking. If you get a modern English dictionary and look at the word Pharisee, you'll find there are two definitions. Here's the first, Pharisee, a member of an ancient Jewish sect teaching strict observance of Jewish Traditions. Definition two, a self-righteous or hypocritical person. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, only definition one applied. It was Jesus who gave rise to the second definition by the very shocking thing of putting together the words Pharisees and hypocrisy. Much like putting together the words good and Samaritan. They just didn't go together. The word hypocrisy and the related noun hypocrite are literal translations of Greek words, hypocrisis and hypocrites, and they've come right over into English to make our words hypocrisy and hypocrites. And they were used in Greek drama to describe a person who put on a mask 
to conceal his face and to play a part in one of those wonderful Greek dramas. And Jesus says, this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're playing a drama out. They're putting on a religious act. And the mask conceals the true identity, what's inside. So that's why he previously said, they're like a cup that is clean on the outside, but when you look inside, it's filthy. They're like a tomb that is whitewashed on the outside, but inside there are rotting bones and flesh. So he warns his disciples, don't be taken in by hypocrisy. Don't be taken in by the act. But it is not just a warning about Pharisees. It is a warning to disciples. Be on your guard. Don't be taken in by hypocrisy. Don't be taken over by hypocrisy. Look what he says. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, The word yeast, or literally leaven, when you were making bread in those days, and still today, you could take a bit of the old dough before you baked it, you put it on one side, and when you made a new batch, you put the bit of leaven in, and it fermented. I'm not sure about all the details, the bakers will call me at the door afterwards, but anyway, what it did, it, it, it permeated the whole batch of dough, and fermented it, and helped it to rise. Now, this is a good thing for bread. But it's a bad thing for religion. If the yeast is hypocrisy. Although only a small amount, yeast gradually and unobtrusively affects the whole batch. So Jesus warns the disciples and us. In his day when everybody looked up to these guys as the epitome of religious devotion, he says if we claim to be his followers, watch out for hypocrisy. A small act, a small show, can begin to take over and corrupt a person until the act becomes the reality, until appearances matter more than character. And once that becomes the norm in a group, in a church, it catches on and infects everyone. So that when you come to church, it's like being in a play and everybody's playing a role. None of them are genuine and real. It is a particular problem in our society in which image sells products, wins TV programs, and even elections. So what happens in the world rubs off in the church. It's so easy to be taken in and taken over by hypocrisy. For as we've been studying in Jeremiah on Sunday mornings, Jeremiah's message is, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. You can deceive yourself. So if the warning of Jesus is not to be deceived by appearances, what is it that we should focus on instead? Well, well, Jesus goes on. He says the antidote is remember what's implicit in what follows. Remember that God sees. It was Robbie Burns who said, Oh, with some poor the gifted years to see ourselves as others see us. You'll excuse the pronunciation from an Englishman. And also excuse the fact that I think he was wrong. Yeah, it's a good thing to see ourselves as others see us. But... If you're a really good hypocrite, you can fool most of the people, most of the time, and often all of the people, all of the time. What we really need to do, the gifty, that's the giver, that is God, needs to give us the power to see ourselves as he sees us. To see the real person. And only God sees us as we really are. You see, you can be sitting here in Charlotte Chapel, you can be singing all the songs, I can be preaching this sermon in the pulpit. You don't know the reality behind the mask. You don't know the real person. Only God sees the heart. Only God sees our real lives and who we really are. 
And Jesus warns us, a day is coming when God will pull back the mask. When you stand before God, he will evaluate you as you really are. Whatever you've concealed will be exposed. Verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Whatever you've said in private will be proclaimed in public. Verse 3, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear and the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So, can you see how radical the teaching of Jesus is? It gets behind the mask. Cuts through the pretense. Shifts our focus from appearances to reality. The reality that God sees all. And because this is the case... Rather than trying to impress other people, the goal of our lives should be to live transparently before God. In a way that pleases God. For one day, all will be revealed. And you need to make sure you're ready for that. And that leads into a second area of concern for the disciples of Jesus. Here's a second warning. Don't be deceived by appearances. Secondly, much bigger section, verses 4 to 12, don't be disturbed by opponents. Don't be disturbed by opponents. Exposing hypocrisy didn't make Jesus very popular with the hypocrites. In fact, if you look at the previous chapter, it concludes, uh, verse 53, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, began to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And it won't be long before words turn to deeds and they decide to do away with this man who is lambasting them regularly, in front of vast crowds. And what they will do to him, Jesus knows they will also do to his followers, or as he describes them, his friends. Lovely phrase, he says, my friends, I've got something to tell you. You're going to have problems. The way they treated me, they're going to treat you. So he tells them how to respond to threatening situations when they face opponents. Let's look at them very simply. You'll see them on the screen if it helps you. When facing those who kill you, verses 4 to 7, do not fear them. Why? Because Jesus says, the most they can do is to kill your body. Rather, fear God. Why? Because he alone has the power to condemn you. He alone has the power to cast you into hell. Jesus says there is a worse fate than physical death. It's called hell. Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. He believed in it firmly. Uh, the Greek word translated hell is literally gehinai. It's from Hebrew words again. It means the valley of Hinnom. It was a place near outside Jerusalem. It's a kind of rubbish dump. In the old days, children had been sacrificed to pagan gods in this place. A good king, Josiah, if you know the Old Testament, had stopped the practice, but the place was regarded as a curse. And in New Testament times, when Jesus spoke this, it was kind of like the, the, the council rubbish tip. And it, it constantly smoldered and burnt with rotting stuff that was thrown out there. So Jesus used this term to describe eternal punishment, which is far worse than physical death. And what he says is, if God has the power to throw you into hell, he's the one you should fear, not the people who kill you. Now we live in a world where the worst possible thing that can happen to you is to die. The least spoken about subject. Used to be sex, everybody talks about that now. Used to be taxes, everybody ignores that now. It's death. We think we can live forever. Worst thing that can happen is to die. Jesus says, no, there's something worse than death. 
If you're not a Christian here, I say to you this evening, the worst thing that can happen to you is to die outside of Christ because God has the power to cast you into hell. doesn't please me to tell you that, but you'd want to know if it was true, would you not? And Jesus says, fear God, <coughs> what he can do to you, far more than any human authorities, and what they can do to you, which is limited to this life. But if we are his friends, Jesus reassures us that God cares for us, he knows all about us. He says, if he cares for sparrows, which are two and a half a penny, five for two pennies, I think that's right, and knows even the number of hairs on your head, you'll not be forgotten by God. So when facing those who kill you, you should not fear them, but fear God, who not only has the power to condemn you, but he also has the power to save you. Either from death in this life, or from hell in the life to come. And linked in with this, Jesus talks about a related area for potential concern. Not only when facing those who kill you, but also when facing those who accuse you. You'll be brought up on trial. Do not worry about what to say, because the Holy Spirit will help you, will teach you what to say. So, Jesus says, acknowledge me before others. When you come up before these people, you'll be tempted to deny me and get off the hook. He says, don't do it. If you acknowledge Jesus before others, he will acknowledge you before the angels of God. If, if you disown Jesus, don't disown Jesus, or he will disown you before the angels of God. Now, this is an issue of utmost seriousness. A matter of eternal life and death, the words before the angels of God is kind of shorthand, before the judgment seat of God where the angels stand around and God judges every person. So Jesus focuses on the crucial issue. When you get there, what's the most important thing? The most important thing before you get there is to know that you're forgiven. So he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There is hope for those who disown Jesus. Classic example is Peter, of course, who disowned Jesus three times before a servant girl but was restored by him. So he says, those who speak a word against the Son of Man, which is shorthand he uses for himself, will, if you like Peter, repent, be forgiven. But he says there is one sin that is unforgivable. He describes it as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? It's caused great heart searching and great heartache to many, usually unnecessary. For let me simply say, if you're worried about it, you've probably not committed it, otherwise you wouldn't be worried. What does it mean? Well, the context here, and we don't have time to look in detail, the context in the parallel passage in Matthew 12 makes it clear what Jesus is talking about. He is referring to those who constantly reject God's forgiveness through the voice of the Holy Spirit and constantly deny his witness that points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Luke, Michael Wilcox writes, If we will not be forgiven... Then in this rational world of God's, it is a mere nonsense to say that we will be forgiven. It is impossible, therefore, for God to forgive one who says, I will not listen to the Spirit when he brings me the message of forgiveness. It is impossible for God to save one who says, I will not follow the Spirit when he points me to the Saviour. This is the ultimate blasphemy, and against that not even God can do anything. The one who is determined to go to hell will certainly get there. So let me ask you at this serious point, is this radical teaching, have you responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Have you trusted Jesus as your saviour? 
Have you confessed him publicly? We have a baptismal service in a few weeks. Seven or so folk at the moment. It's rising, which is great. We'll just keep going. But uh, folk are going to be baptized. Most of them young guys. Great. And, and one young woman as well. That's good as well. Uh, it's an opportunity to stand up and own and confess publicly that Jesus is your Lord. Gary will tell you, if you live in the Muslim world, as I have lived in the, Pakistan, in the Republic of Pakistan, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, you can say anything usually in secret about following Jesus. You stand up and be baptized, and your life is then under threat. At least. It's a costly business, confessing Christ. Why would people do it? Remember, we baptized some of you. Remember, a young guy here was a Muslim, came to study here. And I sat him down in my office and I said to him, I won't give his name or his details, I won't tell you where he came from, but I said to him, what will happen? Do you realize what will happen if you confess Christ in baptism here? Do you realize what it's going to cost you? And he'd only been in this country about two months. He learned a remarkable amount. The Holy Spirit took him a tremendous amount about the gospel, amazingly. And he said to me, let me get this straight, he said. If they kill me, I'll go to be with Jesus forever. Is that right? I said, yeah, that's right. He said, fine, I'll be baptized. What a cost. Follow Christ. And these, these are fundamental issues. Now, what I want you to do at this point, because some of you are switching off at this point, is imagine, this is one of those scenes. Jesus talking about these amazing issues, life and death, heaven and hell, eternal realities. And you think everybody would be gripped. You've, I think most of you should be gripped. Not what I'm saying, but what God is saying to you, what he said to you through Gary. But the reality is not that. As Jesus is speaking, a guy puts his hand up in the crowd. He's a briefcase handleman. And he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Come on. Where there's a will, there's a relative. I mean, <laughs> whether it. You know, as a pastor, you sometimes find this. That where there are eternal issues at stake, you think people will be gripped by it, and yet they go out of fear, and all they're worried about is incidentals. I remember many years ago in my last church, we had a guy who used to do the PA desk, like the guys back there did. I was quite concerned about his spiritual state. It's important when you're on the desk there that you're a keen Christian, because it's a switch-off time, if not. You're fiddling around with controls. So, so this guy, I preached my heart out, and he said... Pastor, can you come to my house this week? I want to talk to you about the sermon. I said to my wife, God's speaking to him. Let's pray for him. It'd be something great, you know. Went round to his house and sat down with him. And he said, he said, Pastor, he said, I've got something to ask you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. What is it? He said, you know last week, he said, when you were preaching the sermon in the evening, he said, I forgot to press the record button. He said, I wonder if we could go in our front room and you could preach the same sermon again. Okay, here's the third warning. The big section. I'm going to get through it quick enough, so don't worry, you know. Okay. Thirdly, don't be distracted by possessions. Don't be distracted by possessions. Jesus issues warnings about possessions. Watch out, he says, verse 15. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There are two warnings about possessions here, right? Here's the first one. Don't live for them, verses 13 to 21. To illustrate this point, Jesus tells one of his parables, a story with this thing in the tale. It's a story about a rich man who was a fool. The story speaks for itself. 
Here's a man who's rich and getting richer. There's no recession in his economy, just a boom period. This particular year, he has a bumper crop, a huge harvest from his fields, so much so he doesn't even have room to store his crops. What should he do? Well, he doesn't need a financial advisor to tell him. It's obvious he must expand his business, build bigger barns for his crops, build bigger storehouses to safeguard all his wealth. And when he has done this, he sits down and thinks to himself, why do I bother? I've got enough to live on the retirement income from this property. What's the point in working any longer? Why not take early retirement? You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Verse 19. Now isn't that a smart move? Isn't that what everybody would say? Wow, lucky guy. Is he not a wise man? I doubt that any business guru could fault his business plan, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The man thought he was smart. The world thought he was wise, but God said he was a fool. The teaching of Jesus really is radical. If you live for possessions, you will find yourself a bankrupt spiritually when you die. A challenge to everyone, verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. It's a challenge to us in our materialistic society. Human beings are more than material things. We are spiritual beings, moral beings. Life is more than material. Material things have no lasting value. Therefore, Jesus says, our priority should be on spiritual things which endure. Did you notice the man's speech? It was full of I, 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 my, my. Centered on himself. Never gave God a thought. Never stopped to listen to what God said until the first thing he really had to stop and listen to was when God said to him, you fool. It's a warning not to live for possession. So, I think Gary put it very clearly. What is he living for? What's your purpose in life? What are your goals? What are you aiming for? Here at university, you're going to get a good degree. I hope you do. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do with your life? How are you going to spend it? What's your ambition in life? Jesus says, watch out. Don't live for possessions. But you can imagine someone saying, if you're not already saying to yourself, it's all where I'm good talking in these spiritual terms, but I mean, a person's got to live, right? So Jesus continues to speak on the same subject, warning about possessions, and he says, not just don't live for them, but secondly, don't worry about them. See that in verse 22? Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. One writer comments, greed can never get enough. Worry is afraid it may not have enough. Now it's one thing to tell someone not to worry. It is another thing to actually stop them from worrying. Take a theoretical example. I've just been to the hospital to see one of our members who's had a stroke. Uh, but let's suppose you get that phone call to go and see your relative. In fact, I got one a couple of weeks ago. My wife, last week, fell and broke her wrist. Some of you heard about it. So to tell everyone she's doing fine, thank you. Just safely telling uh, 600 people at the door. Of it. Uh, but I got a phone call saying, go out to the New Royal Infirmary. Nita's fallen and cr- broken her wrist. Well, we didn't know what she did. She's had an accident. All right? So you rush off to the New Royal Infirmary, all right? And everybody's pacing around. Now the best will in the world a friend comes and says don't worry everything will be fine which you speak for I have no idea really but I hope it's okay but in comes a doctor with a stethoscope and a white coat takes an x-ray and says it's going to be okay don't worry 
Both said the same thing. What's the difference? Well, one was a doctor and the other one was a well-meaning friend. You have confidence and skill in the diagnostic gifts of the doctor. Believe there are good reasons for optimism. So it is with Jesus. When he says, don't worry about possessions, he gives you good reasons. You see them here? There are two. The first is obvious and applies to everyone. Don't worry about possessions because worry is pointless. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? There is nothing to be gained from worry. It will not add an hour to your life or if the footnote is correct, an inch to your height. But he also says worry is not only pointless but worry is faithless. See that in verse 24 and then verses 27 to 30. His argument's simple. He says, if God feeds birds and clothes flowers and fields, will he not feed and clothe human beings who are more valuable than birds and more lasting than flowers and grass? But what he says here applies specifically if you are one of his followers. For notice that Jesus again is not speaking directly to the crowds, though no doubt they're listening. He's speaking directly to his disciples. They should be distinctive from the rest of the population because of their relationship with God. Or as our Charlotte Chapel logo says, they should be conspicuous for Christ. And do not set your heart, this is verse 29, on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things and your Father knows that you need them. If you are in that forgiven relationship with God, you have a Father who looks after you and cares for you. A father who has all the resources necessary. So don't worry about possessions. Some of you, maybe even this evening, are worrying about possessions. How are you going to eat and drink and live? He will give you what you need. You can trust him. So Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, pray, Father, our Father, give us each day our daily bread. And to pray that, and then not to believe it, is a lack of faith in God to provide. To pray and believe it marks us out as different from the rest, the pagan world, who do not know God as Father and so rush around after material things. Now, this is very practical living. I simply ask you the question, as I ask myself, when things get tough materially, financially, as they do from time to time, as people observe our lifestyles, and our life, and our demeanour, our attitude, are we marked out as conspicuous for Christ in the way we handle and consider our possessions? Does it mark us out as people who are distinctive? Let me say something in conclusion. Our time is going. We're getting towards the end. Stay with me. The last four verses of this section, verse 31, 35, 34, it's only four, relate specifically to the final warning about possessions, but they have a broader application as they move from the negative, don't worry, to the positive. Priorities and promises. Our priority is summarised in the first words. But seek his kingdom, verse 31. Matthew's Gospel says, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, which is just an explanation of what seeking his kingdom is. See, the message of Jesus, as we saw right at the beginning, when we started off in Luke's Gospel, was, 
when he came into his ministry the message of John the Baptist in preparation then Jesus was repent for the kingdom of God has arrived God's kingly rule has begun it's time to change direction to put your trust in the king to seek his kingdom above all else what does that mean practically? it means first of all to recognise our rebellion against God to lay down our arms and submit to his peace terms to be reconciled to God and then it means our life has a new goal or direction we're to seek and pursue God's kingdom by allowing him to rule and reign in every facet of our lives in every activity we undertake we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God Romans 12, 1-2 we're even allowed to rule in our thoughts as the Apostle Paul puts it to make every thought captive to Christ 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 the result then is seen in practical living in right living, in righteousness as Matthew puts it so in the context of possessions we hold unlikely to our possessions we give what we have to help those in need it doesn't mean that we have no possessions but rather as with the early church in the book of Acts we hold on to them lightly and use them for the benefit of others especially those who have little or nothing how can you do that? well you have a security God's promise all that we need in the present seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well but before we pray give us each day our daily bread we pray Father your kingdom come and that is what is promised in the future we have promised a kingdom do not be afraid little flock your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom at the present time Jesus' followers are like a little flock that is scattered and surrounded by wolves when the shepherd is killed they will be scattered but that is not the end of the story as the apostle Paul says to Timothy in his last letter here is a trustworthy saying if we died with him we'll also live with him if we endure we'll reign with him that's 2 Timothy 2 11-12 so the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken Hebrews 12 verse 28 so our focus then is not on treasure on earth but on treasure in heaven provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near no moth destroys verse 33 now I guess many of us claim to be Christians this evening maybe we're nodding our heads and saying yeah yeah I heard it all before I believe that yes yes but be careful because as we come back where we started you can fool yourself about this you can really just be putting on a pretense the words of Jesus will not let you off the hook or me off the hook for they conclude with the evidence the proof of our priority for where your treasure is there your heart will be also you want to take a verse away from today just ponder on that verse I've been trying to work it out in my head what does he really mean? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I was trying to think of the best example I could. Here's my best example. You can probably give me a better one. Supposing a man sends his wife a card on birthday or Valentine's Day and inside it says, I love you with all my heart. How would you know if he was telling the truth? Those of us who are married, got girlfriends, we do this kind of thing regularly don't we the card industry thrives on it how do you know if he's telling the truth well the only way I would suggest is to examine his life closely 
What if he discovered that the guy who sent this card, and this is, not, this is a theoretical example, right? what if he discovered he rarely spent any time with his wife, and when he did, his conversation with her was superficial and never animated? What if you find out that he hardly ever spent any money on his wife except what was absolutely necessary, and that he rarely talked about it to his friends and colleagues? And if you could read his thoughts, that he rarely ever actually thought about her. Supposing instead, when you did this examination of his life, that he spent all his time outside of work on the golf course, and spent all his spare cash on playing golf and buying golf equipment, and when he is home, he spent all his time watching golf programs on the television. Where would you say his treasure is? Is it not where his heart is? On golf. Would you, not claim, would you not question his claim that he loved his wife with all his heart? Now, serious though that is, and it is a theoretical example to all you golfers. <laughs> I conclude by asking you, how would you substantiate your far more serious claim which you just sang in this church if you were singing the words that you love Jesus with all your heart, that you seek his kingdom first of all, that you surrender all in abandon to him and that everything you have belongs to Christ. Would your words and songs match the reality of your life? The proof of your priority, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the proof. And I think it's the only proof no matter what we might say. May God help us. Let's pray together.